0: So, John chapter 1. If you have a Bible with you, let's go to John chapter 1. These Sundays following Christmas, just so you know, uh, I hope you had a good Christmas. I should say Merry Christmas. I didn't get to say it in, perp- in person uh, this year over the last couple of, uh, this last seven days or so. But these, I'm going to let you in on a little inside secret. You ready? This is like inside baseball. This is, uh, this is kind of like. Uh, Behind the scenes, look at where things are put together. One of the things that we think a lot about, like a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot about, is how to prepare our hearts well for the Advent season. And so, even though we produce books and we think about the church calendar and we create graphics and sermon series, and I will start months ahead of time praying through and talking and having conversations, thinking about, well, where are we going to go for Christmas? And what do we teach and how does that work? And then in addition to that, maybe slightly less than that, those special occasions, we spend a lot of time thinking about the books of the Bible that we're going to teach through. And once we get started on a book, I mean, you know, you've been around for a while. Once we get started on a book, we just don't stop for a while. And so that kind of sets us in course. We're on a train, the thing is chugging along, and we're going. But there's another category of weeks and another category of Sundays and another category of times and those are what I would call, in, in many cases, they're, they're sort of in-between Sundays. They are the kind of Sundays where many people are gone and traveling. I don't need to show you that. Should we, should we point out and count? So many people are gone and they're traveling. We are no longer in the book of Genesis. We just finished it up. More or less, everything that is proper and right and good about Advent season, we could say it was culminated in the lighting of the Christ candle by the Starks on Christmas Eve evening, Christmas Eve, that even and evening is the same thing. By lighting the Christ candle, Advent, you could say, is done. So, what happens is, is we are left with weeks like this morning, and I spend time thinking and praying and and wondering, well, what do we focus on and where does this go? And I was brought back to something that we point out in the story devotional, the, the book that we've produced, the devotional that we give to you and we have last year and this year again. And one of the main points of that particular book and what I want to model for us in front of you is that the church calendar, the times that we pause and things that are special, are not meant to be one-off moments that we celebrate and get dressed up for and everything's exciting, and then we forget about it when everything is normal the rest of the time. But instead, what we ought to be doing is to be having seasons like Advent where we take special time and we dress up and we focus on something and we let that be a launching pad or a fertile ground for the fruit of, the celebration of that thing for the rest of the year. So, what I hope is happening this morning is that you have not forgotten Christmas because it's December 27th. I hope that the tree is still up, and I hope that the songs are still ringing in your hearts and in your minds, and I hope that the conversations that you're having about the wonder of the Incarnation is still planted deep in your hearts. Christmas is a kind of high. Now, I've never been high. I'm not running for political office or anything. I thought I'd just say that. But you know how this works, right? There's like the it just sort of like wears off. And so here's what I'm praying for this morning: two a twofold thing. One, that we can model for you the reality that Christmas, just because we're past the 25th, Christmas has not lost importance. We don't need to put it away on the shelf because we are sick of it. Christmas is the foundation that we build the rest of our Christian lives upon in many ways, and so we're going to continue to think about it. Secondarily, I'm banking on the fact that you haven't lost your high, that you're not saying, I'm over it, I worked myself up, and now I'm tired. So when I said we're going to go to John chapter 1... What I want to do is I want to take an additional portion of Scripture that I believe mirrors very, very similar Galatians chapter 4. We spent four weeks in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. And the reason that we spent that is because in many, many ways, I said this was Christmas behind the scenes. This was Christmas according to the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Galatians. More than that, I would say that it's the gospel. Galatians chapter 4 told us that Jesus was born of a woman. And in the fullness of time, Jesus came to this world, He put on flesh, He emptied Himself, He lived a perfect life, He fulfilled every part of the law so that He could redeem us from the curse of the law that we might become children of God and we become children of God by His Spirit indwelling us. That's the whole point of Christmas according to the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians. You might call that, that was the the gospel according to Galatians. What I want to look at now in John, the first chapter, first chapter of John, starting in verse 9, is a short little passage, just a few verses that I believe mirrors the same message. And it's going to reinforce, hopefully, for us, that wherever you read through the New Testament, that each of the writers has been given the same Spirit of God to communicate the same truths of God, and that is what you might just call the gospel. So the last four weeks we spent looking at Christmas, according to Paul. And now a few verses this morning, we're going to say Christmas according to John, or perhaps the gospel according to John. Next week, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and you're going to hear the gospel according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. These are timeless truths that we build our lives on, not convenient sentiments for a particular season of time. I think that's, that's the point. And it seems odd to me, and probably our own fault, the way the church has organized life. We're very campaign-oriented oftentimes. It seems odd to me, and probably our fault, that I ever have to defend or explain to you why I'm going to preach an incarnation passage after Christmas. Isn't that weird? It's an odd thing. And yet, here we go. And there I went, defending it all the way down. This is the ninth verse of John chapter 1. but of God. I'm going to stop there, and I just want to point out how closely this mirrors what we learned in Galatians chapter 4. This tells us, John is in much more theological, artful terms, but it tells us that God came into the world, doesn't say born of a woman, but same concept being mentioned here. He came into the world to meet and to care for and to redeem sinful people who had rejected God in their faithlessness, and the end result of this coming into the world to meet people who had rejected Him is that they might be welcomed into His family, which is the concept of adoption. And all of this takes place, according to John, in the same way that the Apostle Paul says in Galatians it took place, and that is that the Spirit of God comes and makes us alive and gives us a new birth. These simple facts of the gospel make up everything that there is to know about Christmas. That God is, and He has visited us in the person of Jesus Christ, and He came to visit us because we are a people who need to be redeemed, who are living in unbelief. And that despite our unbelief, the fact that God has come in the flesh means that His business and His mission was to welcome us into His family. And that this miraculous transfer of family identity is going to happen by a miracle of the Spirit of God in much the same way that the virgin birth took place by a miracle of the Spirit of God. This is how we describe the good news. This will need to be what we rehearse. This is what we profess. This is the content and the conviction that all Christians share concerning the details of the gospel. Now, one of the unique things that happens in the Bible, I just made the point that in many ways, these things are the same. So, in Galatians, Paul is writing in a very particular situation. In fact, in Galatians, he's cranky, he's angry about theological problems that are happening, people who are causing those who otherwise were in Christ to begin to trust themselves and follow the law. He's angry, but he shares the gospel with them. In John, we have a particular way the gospel is being shared. This is the same content more or less, but John's gospel is going to be given to us in a particular flavor in the same way that Second Corinthians next week as we look through The gospel content of 2 Corinthians is going to come in a different context, a different way. And so, here's the wonder of the way the Bible is written. It is the same Spirit giving the same message and the same hope again and again and again, but written through different personalities to different places with different problems. And as we take the whole of God's Word together, we start to get more and more light because we see these situations being dealt with differently The way that John deals with the Incarnation and specifically the purpose of the Incarnation is unlike any of the other Gospels. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they read more like history books. They want the details right, and sometimes they give you the dates and the genealogies. As we get to John, he describes for us in all the glory, all these glorious words and poetic words almost, the theology of the Incarnation. So John, much like Galatians chapter 4, is a behind-the-scenes. Why was this taking place? And he gives us some things to think about. I'm going to break this down into three sections. There's only five verses, but I'm going to break it down into three sections and we're going to think about it like this. First, I want to point out, because I think John wants us to take with us from Christmas. What do we carry away? What are you leaving the white elephant gift exchange with? What did you take home? He wants us to take home these things, I believe. First, the preeminence of Jesus, the preeminence, and there's going to be some words or some other concepts here to make sure that we understand this. He introduces verse 9, the true light. So, the preeminence of Jesus. Then second, the persistence of unbelief, the persistence of unbelief. And what I want to get here is the idea that unbelief should shock us. Unbelief should shock us. That's what he's trying to say, that there's something about sin and unbelief that is just, is craziness. So, the preeminence of Jesus, secondarily the persistence of unbelief, and then finally, finally at the end, we're going to talk about the purpose of new life. That's the idea here, the preeminence of Jesus, the persistence of unbelief, and then the purpose of new life. What is is this given to us and how does this function? Our new family, so, first I want to talk about the preeminence of Jesus. There is an exclusive nature of Jesus, an exclusive nature about the message of Christmas that cannot be undone. John chapter 1, verse 9 says, "...the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world." There's a few things that we need to take from this in order to understand, I think, what John is giving us. Here's the first thing to mention that Jesus is the true light. What does He mean, the true light? I think this is meant to show us, to highlight, It's not really a pun but it's close, to highlight for us that there are many, many false, or if not outright false, at least derivative lights in the world. Here is a basic rule of human nature. We are looking for light. If a person loves and desires non-stop darkness, this is a sickness. We have been designed from the soul of our being to search for and to long for light. We want hope, we want meaning. We want to know that there is purpose behind the things that we're doing, and so we all search for light. We place our lives in the direction of whatever light shines and catches our eye most. And so, everywhere in the world that we look, there are kinds of light. Now, the Bible is, and I might as well say it right from the start, the Bible is very, is full of warnings about one particular kind of light, and that is is that there can be false lights. In other words, there are promises that the world makes, or there are things that shine in the world that promise that if we follow them or go toward them, they will leave to hope, but the reality is they are designed with the complete opposite interest in mind. In fact, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. There are times when the things that catch our eye and the things that are shiny and the things that promise hope need to be rejected and just seen as completely and utterly false. In other words, there are some things that you and I are hoping in that have nothing of value at their core. They just need to be utterly and totally rejected. They will lead nowhere. In fact, they will lead to our total and utter destruction. This is the reality of our world people are searching for light and sometimes they find false lights. Jesus comes in contrast to these false lights. But I want to make a secondary point that I think is perhaps more realistic and something that is often the case and makes things difficult to understand, and that is this, that this true light that comes into the world, which is Jesus, because all things were created through Him, which we're going to get to in verse 10. The world was made through Him because everything was made through the true light. There are many, 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 many places and things in the world and people in the world that have what I would call derivative light. In other words, they really do kind of shine. There is something of value in them. There is a common grace that runs as a thread through all of creation And sometimes what happens is someone is attracted, or you see some sparkle, or you see something that you are drawn to, and you say, this seems like light, this seems like hope, and the reality is that in some ways, it is. We can say out loud, and we should, that wherever and whenever there is good in the world, wherever and whenever there is hope in the world, that these things have been given as a good gift coming down from heaven by the Father of lights, and there are sometimes the good things in the world, what happens is we we see the derivative, the secondary, the supplemental kind of light or the, the sort of afterglow light, the reflection of the true light, and we begin to ignore or forget where the original source of light comes from. But here's what John tells us. John is summing up the hopes of the whole world, and he's saying everyone is looking for something, everyone is is trying to catch a glimmer, trying to live in a way that gives their life meaning, and sometimes they get caught up in false and derivative lights. And what Jesus has done in coming in the flesh in this miraculous way is He has revealed Himself to be what He's always been, which is the true light, the only source of light, the fount of all light in the world. Jesus, of course, would echo these words later in His life by saying, I am the light of the world. So, for those of us who have been enlightened by and commit to Jesus, through Him, We should be able to see and to point out where we find His light in others and in some philosophies and in some good things of the world. But for those of us who have tasted and have seen, for those of us who have our eyes opened and understand the true light that has come into the world, there will be no replacement and no temptation for us to hope and trust in them. Now, secondarily, another thing about this light that has come, not only is he the true light, right? So we need to reserve for him a kind of brightness and a source of brightness that is in nothing else. But secondarily, John tells us that this true light that came in gives light to everyone. This means that Jesus has exclusive claim he is a universal light, Now, not everyone is going to receive the light of Jesus with joy, but one day the light of Jesus will shine on all things and all things will be brought to bear. Everything will be brought out in the open. I think that's what this means here. That Jesus has come and he's declaring to the world that one day everything will be out in the open. What did Jesus tell his disciples la- later? Things that have been whispered will be shouted from rooftops. Things that were hidden in darkness will be on them, a light has shone. And so Jesus has claimed not only to be the true light, but a universal light for everyone. There is no such thing as truth or light for me. There is light for everyone, and it is Jesus. He will have the right to judge and to bring into view everything and everyone, good or bad. In that way, how many times did you hear over the last week, uh, Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays if you don't celebrate Christmas? I don't know if you've heard these kind of things. I mean, it's fine. I, I like the sentiment if someone says, I want you to be joyful, then that's great. Okay, I want you to be joyful. But I thought about the number of times that someone says, I don't celebrate Christmas, Christmas isn't for me. And I think what John's trying to say in John chapter 1 is, no, 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 The Christmas is for everyone. Whether you want Christmas to be celebrated or not, or whether you want Jesus to be important or not, Christmas is for everyone. The light has come into the world, the true light, and it gives light to everyone. Everyone and everything and every deed and every motive will be brought to light. So Christmas is... For everyone. And then the wonder of the Incarnation is this, the the exclusive nature, the preeminence of Jesus, His rights in the world. He is the true light, the source of all light. He is a universal light for everyone. And then perhaps most amazingly, He is present. He has come into the world. We have access to this light. This light, you mean the true one, all of us longing for and putting our hopes in something that will give us a shimmering future, you mean the universal light for everyone has been made known, and the answer is yes, definitively yes. This light has come into the world, set the world aflame in a certain way, and it has not stopped burning since He dropped in this light is true and universal and present. And so John tells us, Christmas time, the story of the incarnation, the story of the manger, and what God was doing in these things is a claim over all of the earth and all people at all times forever. That is That is a a thing that we need to carry with us from Christmas, the preeminence of Jesus. He is not one good story amongst many, but the claim, you cannot tell the story of Christmas without making claims to show the preeminence, the exclusive nature of Jesus. Now, despite that, and this is where I think some wonder and some tension come into into John's teaching, despite that, there is a true light that gives light to everyone. He's come into the world, a present light. John goes on to say this in this first chapter, that despite the preeminence of Jesus, there is persistent unbelief. It says that He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. you ever thought about the craziness of unbelief? Think about all that you know to be true. Think about every bit of the conviction of your soul, about who you are and about who God is and about what is right and about what is wrong and about the hope that we have in the coming of God in the flesh. And yet we doubt and we're anxious and we make our own paths and we make excuses. We say that we've been forgiven and often offered mercy and grace and yet we are tempted toward and then end up hiding the sins that we commit? And John is making this massive statement that is condemning in some some way, but I think is compassionate about the confusion that this offers as well. There is a true light. He gives light to everyone. He's come present into the world. And yet, can you believe this? Get this. The true light was in the world, and everyone ignored him. This is astounding. It reminds us specifically of the the kind of blindness. The way the Bible describes the way that we can't see in our sin is that we've been blinded, and it would take a blind person to miss this. That's what John's saying. Have you ever looked back in your life? Have you ever looked at the sins of your life? Have you ever looked at the actions of your life? Or maybe if you want to get outside of yourself, I like to start with self when we're talking about negative things. But if you want to get out of yourself, have you ever looked at someone else's life and you've seen the mistakes that they're making and the sins that they're committing, the things that they're addicted to, the paths that you're on, and you just want to say, how can you not see? What is going on? But there is a persistent inability to receive and to know the true light that's come into the world. This is because we are born of a sinful nature and then continue on in sin. I think this phrase in verse 10 that he was in the world is a play in two ways. He's already shown us at the beginning of John's gospel in chapter 1 that Jesus was in the beginning, he was the word, and that all things were made through him. And Romans chapter 1 teaches us or shows us and reminds us that what has been created is enough to keep us accountable, but we push it back. This is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. It says, "...the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." Romans chapter 1 says, No, the light has been in the world. The light is there. It's shining bright as day, and yet people wander around and say, It is dark. And there is no light there. I don't know what you're talking about. Romans chapter 1 describes this unbelief, this persistent not knowing, this persistent rejection as unrighteousness. And one of the things you find in the Bible very, very often is that a lack of faith is equated with unrighteousness regularly. To not believe that God is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him, to not believe and to act in unfaith is a moral decision, not a mental one or not merely a mental one. Is it a moral decision? What Romans chapter 1 tells us, is that when we describe the preeminence of Jesus and when He comes into the world, that what is going to happen is He's going to come to a world that is persistent in unbelief down to the level of our own dissatisfaction and insanity. There is an irrationality about the fallenness of the world. Verse 18 of Romans 1 said that by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth, our sin nature as well as our, our consistent desire for sin and a desire for hiding has blinded us to this light that has come. One helpful thing about this, the fact that there is a true light and Jesus is exclusive. He gives light to everyone. He's come into the world. To realize that the world has not known him is to remember and to have compassion on the people around us. This means that you have never once in your entire life ever, ever, ever met a spiritually neutral person. There are no people who are completely and other, utterly just not spiritual, haven't thought about it. I'm just in the middle. Scripture tells us that there is a light that is shown into the world either through the general revelation of creation, that Jesus has been made evident, because all things were made through him, and He upholds it by the word of His power. Or they've been explicitly told the gospel about the coming of Jesus in the flesh, about the light that has come, and they have been indifferent, they have been persistent in their unbelief, and this is a moral decision. So when you talk with someone, you should find someone, and you should discuss with them, and you should think with them about the fact that you are not having a mental conversation with them, or at least not... Most, you're not. You should engage mentally with people, of course. You should engage in logic with people as they're thinking through things. But you should pray for them, remembering that at the core of their heart, there is a persistent unbelief. There is a suppressing of the knowledge of God for fear of what it would mean to give up control and to have light shine into their life. As we identify the struggle of unbelief, and I think that people struggle through it. I really believe there are times where there are defeater beliefs or things that people just can't get over. Of course, engage them, but we can never forget or act as though it was that one piece of information that kept the person from seeing the light, that ultimately that this is a spiritual reality. And if someone is in a spiritual reality of doubt and a persistence of unbelief, then what they need more than anything is a spiritual rebirth. And so that is where we get this purpose of a new family, this purpose of new birth. In verses 11 and 12, the wonder, or verses 12 and 13, we get the wonder of this gospel, this good news, this unbelievable truth that what has been given to us in the persistent light. What has been given to us in the fact that Jesus has come is good news. For those who are in persistent unbelief, for those who cannot see, for those who who refuse to receive, we're given a definition of what it would look like to receive Him. Receiving Jesus is a common phrase in Christian circles. Have you received Jesus? It's a wonderful thing to ask someone, have you received Him? Well, John is helpful to us in that he shows us, well, what would that mean? What does it mean to receive Him? It tells us to receive Jesus is to believe in His name, to believe in His name, that ultimately in a world where we can't measure up and that we cannot perform, ultimately in a world where we're never, ever, ever going to cut it, the glory of the gospel is this, that ultimately the most important command, the most significant thing that we must do is not an action or not some sort of performance metric on our part, but to receive and believe. It tells us this. What are the things that we're supposed to believe? How, does this, how, how is this purpose of the light coming and overcoming our unbelief? How does it work in real time? Well, as someone believes the following things, they will be ushered in and welcomed in as children. Here's a few of the things that someone must not only acknowledge, but come to trust in, if they are to receive this Jesus, this light that has come, first, that Jesus has come from God. This is a baseline acknowledgement that God is. Hebrews tells us it is impossible to please God without faith, a faith that says that He is, that He exists, and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. So the first statement, the thing that we confess is that Jesus has come from God, that He was with God and was God and came for our sake in the flesh. More than that, we must confess that Jesus came from God in order to save, in order to save from sin, which requires an acknowledgement that the world was in a fallen state and persistence of unbelief. Receiving the light, receiving Jesus, getting a new birth and a new place in a family means that we acknowledge that Jesus has come from God but also that he has come from God in order to save a fallen world. He has not come down to give out trophies and ribbons. He's come down to bring new life to dead people, to give sight to the blind. And then more than that, I would say this. You must confess that Jesus came not only from God, but from God to save a fallen world of which I am a part of the problem. You must acknowledge this, I need saving because I have sinned. You must acknowledge this, I can't see very well. I have dim vision. I'm often blind. We put before our Savior our need and our sins. And then finally, and this is not a small part of believing the gospel, the gospel is not simply that you would feel so bad about yourself that God would finally let you in. The gospel includes the belief that when you say Jesus has come from God and he came to a fallen world of which I am a part of the problem, also you would believe this. To receive the light means that you would believe that upon confessing these things, you have been made a part of the family, that you have an assurance that you are with God. The joy of the gospel means that you get it. Good news is only good news if it's good news. If it's not good news to you, if the gospel simply means that you're going to feel more guilty or worse about yourself, or if it puts you into a cycle of constant navel-gazing and thinking about how bad you are as though you're you offering penance to God, you have not received the gospel. What the gospel does is it leaves someone in a new, with a new purpose for life, a new reality of who they are. They become born Again, the assurance of forgiveness of sins is something that we receive in our believing what Jesus has done. And so we no longer cling on to our sins, not only in committing them, but in the wrath that we would have received for them. We believe we've been forgiven. Now, all of this happens as a supernatural work. And it's why that at the end of the day, what we are to do is to pause and to not perform, but to pause, to look and not try to, to work up in ourselves, but to look on Jesus and to ask Him to do a spiritual work in us. You see, God is ultimately in control of this entire process. That's the amazing thing about John chapter 1. We believe, yes, no one is forgiven and no one gets into God's family without believing. You actually have to believe, you need to confess, you need to be made new, like these things are real in your life. But ultimately, this is what John chapter 1 said, all of this comes from God and He's in control of it. It says that He gave the right to become children of God. He, God gave the right to become children of God, He is the the keeper of salvation and that those who become children of God are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I think this points to the virgin birth, and John isn't going to get there. John is very poetic and theological. He's not very much on the point, especially in the first chapter. This is as close as he gets in chapter 13 to saying, here's what's going to happen. remember the miracle of the incarnation? That's the kind of miracle that needs to take place in you, do you want to walk the path that Jesus walked? Do you want to be like him? Do you want to be united to him? Then you need to be born in a just as miraculous a way. And if you recall, an angel visits Mary, says to him, you are with child. You're going to give birth to this son. And she says, this is impossible. How is this going to happen? And what does the angel say? The angel says this, well, here's how all of this happens. The spirit of God will come upon you the Spirit of God will come upon you, and you will be with child. And here is what John chapter 1 says. John chapter 1 says that if you see the true light, the preeminence of Jesus, and if you acknowledge the persistence of your unbelief, and if you begin to confess these things, then here's what's going to happen. The Spirit of God is going to come upon you. The Spirit of God is going to come upon you, and you are going to be born in a new way. You're going to be received in to the family, not based on your will, not born again of blood. Remember John chapter 3, Nicodemus has a hard time with this. He says, I don't, I don't get it. How am I going to go back in my mom's womb? He says, no, 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 none of that, but God will make you new. You see, ultimately, when we are sharing the story of Christmas, when we're sharing the story of the Incarnation, When we get the basics down and we explain these things, what we are doing is we're sharing the gospel, not only with others, but hopefully with ourselves. And that, I hope, is what we build our lives upon. Not just that December 25th is over, but now we're a few days after. And if there's something you take away, what's your take home? Take home this gospel. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would do a supernatural work, one that we cannot do. I confess to you that my words are not going to cut it. You know this more than any of us know it. I pray, God, that here this morning that the message of the gospel that the real meaning of Christmas would not be lost on us, that it wouldn't be mere celebration, but it would be a conduit to our hope, a conduit to our new existence, our new life in Jesus. I thank you, God, for the work of the Spirit that moved men along to record these things for us, your words, your truth. I thank you for the perspective we get in Galatians and the perspective we see in John's gospel. I pray that as we consider these things that we would be convinced, convicted, and that you would give us the ability to declare these things to the world, that the light has come, the light is for everyone, and that his presence can give us hope. We ask these things in Jesus' name.